everyone, and welcome back to the ICU Ed and Toddcast. ICU Ed like education, Ed and Todd, Toddcast podcast. I am Eddie, he is Todd. And today, switching up a little bit, we've got a lot of good discussion about new, shiny, fancy, randomized control trials. But today we're going to talk a little bit about blood pressure management, starting with an observational study titled Accuracy of Non-Invasive Blood Pressure Monitoring in Critically Ill Adults. It was published by Haber et al. in Journal of Intensive Care Medicine, January 2024. And then we hop back- No eponym. Yeah, no eponym, acronym, what have you. Portuguese man of war. After that, we hop back to February of 2020 for the 65 trial, uh, which I'd love to get your thoughts on that title, which was looking at MAP targets in elderly adults. We'll, we'll get there, Todd. February 2020, Todd, seems like seems like it was way more than four years ago. How have you been? Since February of 2020, how have I been? No, since the Just last Just give pod. us a brief recap on the last four years. <laughs> You've not been up to anything in since the last four years. It's been relatively fast. No, fast since the last pod, last pod. Uh, last pod's been fine. I've been spent a little time in the ICU taking care of some patients, trying to get some some non-clinical work done. It's a little bit of the usual. Sound a little bit down. It's raining currently as we're recording. It's raining. It's kind of, I mean, in our area, February is sort of that dreary month. There's a lot of rain. There's a lot of 40 degree, 50 degree rain. You know. Yeah, it's, it's not, not it's not quite cold enough to be snow. Yeah, and for me, and I think I've told you this before, but the listeners will maybe hear this for the first time. Uh, for me, the worst weather ever is cold rain. Like I grew up in the northern part of the country, and we had snow, and so I'm kind of used to snow. And you can get warm in snow, or at least I can. Cold rain, I, I'm chilled like the whole time, the whole day. Sit next to a fire, you're still chilled. It's it, it's just not pleasant for me. All right. Well, this is a new record for getting off on a tangent for us. So we'll go <laughs> we'll go to one programming note before we begin. Uh, we're going to try to be a little bit more organized for the near future, see how long that lasts. It's probably over already. <laughs> we will, of course, give our insights on anything new, shiny, fancy as they come out. But we hope to talk about Vent Avoid, which was using extracorporeal CO2 removal for patients with COPD exacerbation in the near future with some special guests. And I should say this, but I I typically don't. If you enjoy this, uh, please subscribe, leave a five-star review. It allows people who might be searching their podcast app to stumble upon us. Uh, We didn't get much listener feedback this past episode because I guess everyone's as tired as I am as talking about steroids and ARDS, the three pods in a row. So let's talk about some evidence. Like I said, we're going to be talking about the article titled Accuracy of Non-Invasive Blood Pressure Monitoring in Critically Ill Adults. It's a retrospective observational study published in the Journal of Intensive Care Medicine. First article for them this year runs from pages one to seven, which is kind of cool. It's also the first article for them that we've talked about. Now, is that true? I think that's true. No, that's probably true. I was excited to talk about this one because, I mean, well, Todd, they, they stole my idea. Like literally in the past couple of months, I was getting some code prep to do pretty much the exact same analysis. And then I see this get published and, you know, the struggle's real, Todd. Yeah, well, it probably took you too long to write the code. Yeah, that's fair. They just did it better. I mean, and looking at the article, they did it better than I was going to do it anyway. So let's talk a little bit about this. But first, for listeners, Todd and I practice at an institution where invasive blood pressure monitoring through an arterial line is is not the default culture. It's not uncommon, but it's not it's not our default. It would be a major limitation if I tried to do this analysis with our data. We probably did more of it during COVID than we had in the past, and I think some of that's carried over a little bit to our today practice. But but I think to say that our bias is towards non-invasive cuff pressures is fair, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think that's true, but I think that's our ICU specific. I think there are other ICUs in our institution that tend to put in more arterial lines than 
than we do for sure. Yeah, that's fair. That's uh, fair. And I think your characterization that whether it was COVID or something else in the last five years, our use of arterial lines has increased some. It's still, I think, if you talk to colleagues across the country, less than most places, but it's increased compared to what we did 10 years ago. Yeah. So that's just for the listeners to know kind of like where our biases come from. Todd, I guess, you know, there's a way of saying you're old would be you have more institutional knowledge than me. Why, why don't we do more arterial lines? Any background there? Well, when I came here, there was lots of discussion about the end result of uh, our having an arterial line was you drew 10 times as many arterial blood gases uh, if you had an arterial line in. And I think that's actually true. I think that um, if you have a line in and you have access to it, lots of people draw arterial blood gases. But now we just pull venous blood gases. Yeah. Do you really change the amount of blood that you've drawn? Well, the, the venous blood gases is a little viral and maybe out of control a little bit too, but that was part of it. And then the other part of it was is that there was a thought process here based off of some preliminary type data, but not real good data that you, except for in special circumstances, didn't really need an arterial line to measure a blood pressure, that the cuff was probably adequate and you could use the cuff and not put the patient at risk for complications from having an invasive line and, you know, that sort of stuff. So I think that's why we use them less than than most of our kind of peer institutions. Yeah, and that makes sense. And this is kind of exactly what this article is getting at. So I think it'll be fun to talk about. You like articles that sort of reinforce your prior. Well, I'm not sure there's one reinforces my yeah, prior. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. I love that they published this article. It's a great article. The it's results a, are outstanding. Well, it's a great article because, I mean, it's it was a great idea, right? You know, great minds think alike. Yeah. Like I said, this was a retrospective observational study. It was done at Georgetown, which is in Washington, D.C. A foggy bottom off the green line of the metro rep the district. They collected data from all their patients admitted to the medical – don't shake your head – to the medical ICU from April of 2019 to the July of 2021. So – I mean, in theory, there is a lot of COVID in this population. They don't report it, per se. They collected all blood pressure measurements where the arterial line and the non-invasive cuff pressures had simultaneous measurements with no difference in time allowed, which is pretty strict, and I like that they did it that way. They had different definitions of what discrepant meant, and so here they said uh, more than a 10% difference is discrepant. They also did something interesting here, which I, I would do want your input on. Uh, they recorded variables at the time of the blood pressure measurement to see if there were patient features that predicted discrepancy. So each measurement had its own set of baseline patient variables. So if a patient got an arterial line and then later got intubated, they could potentially contribute pairs of invasive and non-invasive blood pressure measurements where the respiratory status is intubated in one instance and not intubated in another instance. So what I think that this means is they have like a, a pseudo cluster design here. And maybe that's not the right technical term, but each patient is like its own cluster and each blood pressure pair is an independent measurement. The problem is, is that each blood pressure measurement isn't independent if there are multiple measurements from the same person. Right. So even if the person's intubated now, yes, it's a little bit different, but there still are enough features that will associate between the non-invasive and the art line that the two groupings in the same patient are not like entirely independent. Yeah, that's why I said like each patient, it's like it's that's own cluster. That's why you said pseudo-cluster. Yeah, pseudo-cluster. Which cluster. I don't even know what that means. Because it's not, it's I mean, not technically pseudo a cluster. pseudo-technically, I guess, is false. So this would be a false cluster. You're just a hater right now. Is this like a nerd's cluster? This is this is you this is you being a nerd's uh, depressed gummy with cluster the, with the weather. I'm glad we talked about the weather up front. So it's a nerd's gummy listening. cluster. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Todd is referencing a Super Bowl commercial. 
Not for anybody. No, I'm referencing a an excellent candy. You first saw in a Super Bowl commercial. No, I've been eating this for a year and a half. No, you haven't. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's so absolutely. much crap. It's a pretty good candy. Although I can't lie and say that I enjoy the blueberry ones. The blueberry ones aren't as good. You're getting confused with Nerd's Rope. No, no. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to let us go there because it's tangent. All the non-American listeners who don't have all the U.S. Uh, sweets will be very confused. And the U.S. diabetes. <laughs> yeah, the U.S. diabetes and the U.S. obesity will be very confused about that last minute. One of the huge things I was missing from like the methods and potentially the results, which I really wanted to know was, you know, at this institution, when do they put in A-lines? Do they put it in all patients? They put it only put it in certain situations. Is it protocolized? Like I said, I had thought about doing some sort of a similar analysis in our population, but our population would be very biased. We only put in arterial lines when we think that we need them. And so we'd be very skewed to like the high vasopressor use population. And so I don't know what this population is really. You said we only put them in when we think that we need them. Hopefully every institution only puts them in when they think that they need them. We can disagree about when we think we may need them. But, sure, fair. Uh, but I think based off of the patient population and the kind of widespread of severity of illness that they have. And I think they use them fairly routinely. You know, like I think you're saying if we would do this at our institution, we would have a lot of patients and extremists because that's when we're putting in lines than what you saw in this study. That's that's what I'm trying to say. And they like you said, looking at the advantage of doing it in a broader population. Exactly. Exactly. So like like I said, they not only did it better than I put that I would have, but they had a better patient population to do it in. Any other comments on the methods and things specific you're looking for when you're looking at observational research, either a retrospective or prospective? No, I mean, I think they used an opportunity. They had an opportunity. They were smart enough to recognize what it was. They used it to say, hey, how well do these correlate? You know, the fact that they did them at the same time is good. The fact that they might be in different arms may introduce some additional discrepancy. But regardless, right, if you're not in the same arm, then you could say, okay, maybe it'll be off a little bit because it's not in the same arm. But in general, I think those are going to be relatively rare episodes, rare events. And I think you're getting a pretty good comparison of the two. Yeah, I thought I thought the methods for the question that they wanted to answer ended up being pretty, pretty solid here. Yeah. So I mean, the question that I want to know is, is does an art line it change outcomes? That's but that's a hard question to answer. Yes, and I was going to get into that, but they they don't provide any clinical outcomes here at all, right? Yeah. And in an observational way, they were likely to be biased. Sicker patients got an art line. Hey, it looks like art lines. Kill we just people. talked about that. It seems like maybe they just had a little bit more routine yeah, use here. Maybe we're jumping a little bit ahead. Uh, talking about what they did, they had 53,000 simultaneous invasive and non-invasive blood pressure measurements over these two years. Table one was their patient characteristics. I found it a little bit weird at first because I was looking for two groups, but what they did is they only gave the total cohort characteristics because there isn't a comparison group here. Patients had simultaneous non-invasive and invasive blood pressure measurements. Median age was 63, about 43% female. BMI here was 27. It was 46% black, 39% white, and 61% who had a prior history of hypertension and 38% with diabetes. As far as arterial line placement, 81% had a radial arterial line and 11% had femoral. And then 8% had other, and other included brachial axillary and dorsalis pedis. Dorsalis pedis, Todd. You know, I thought I was slick to stick the DP for an ABG once. Is that the most unique arterial line you've ever seen, Todd? I've put one in. Actually, I think I've put two in. I've never put one in. Were you on for the patient who had a 
popliteal no. arterial line. No. Patient was prone, the only artery we had access to. Uh, you know, you sometimes you can supine the patient to do procedures. We had tried we had tried both radials. Got it. And answer the question. Got it. It came out when we decided to supine them later. Figure one was their bland Altman plot, which I think Todd is just a fancy name for a scatter plot. Well, kind of, but it shows you a dispersion of the differences between the groups based off of how big the number is based off of what a baseline number is. So it gives you an idea of how variable the two measurements are and based off the value of the measurement. Honestly, it's, I think, the right way to actually do this analysis. When you're comparing kind of how these correlate and how well they they match up, I think the Bland-Altman is probably the right analysis and the right figure to, to actually look at these. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So on their x-axis, they have the average map and then on the y-axis, they have the difference between the non-invasive and the invasive arterial line. So to be clear, that's if the non-invasive is higher than the invasive, then it's going to give you a positive number. And if the invasive is higher, uh, it's going to give you a negative number. Although, honestly, that part of it, which one they put first doesn't really matter. Right. You can right. flip but this and but that's just, flip it on its head and yeah, just, still give but that's just for the sake of the orienting yourself for this yeah, conversation. Yeah, yeah. So they have a they have a line through negative six millimeters of mercury, so a horizontal line on their y axis, which means that on average there is a six millimeters of mercury difference between the non invasive and invasive where the invasive blood pressure measurement was yeah. higher. Which was probably about their ten percent threshold. Yeah. Because that would be a mean of about 60, 65, something like that. Yeah. So the base, so the, it looked like their baseline was discrepant. And they had a lot of discrepancies, as we'll get into, but they had a, a 95% limits of agreement, which I'm taking to mean basically as a 95% confidence interval that said that difference went from negative 23 millimeters of mercury to 11. So positive 11. So that's a, that's a pretty big band for as many measurements as they had for a map. For map. I mean, there are dots on this Bland-Altman plot, which we'll probably post this picture to the X Twitter, but they go all the way up to 30, and they actually cut off differences of positive 30 and negative 30 beyond that because they said that's mo- most likely to be erroneous. But man, there's like a pretty high density of dots up at positive 30 and negative 30. So there seems like a big, really big spread here. Yeah, I just, uh, for the reader, for the listener standpoint, we just have to, I think, be careful when we say a very a pretty high density at those in the fact that there's 52,000 measurements here. And yeah, there's dots up there, but like most of the dots are like near the negative six. Yeah. I mean, that's, 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 that's the point of the plot, but like, I'm just saying like, it's not like it's negative six, nothing else. Like if you're not looking at this plot, like you're driving or something and you're trying to look for a description, like it's, it's pretty dispersed. It's not really focused. But if we had 1% that were outside of the negative six, that's 500 dots. I mean, that's a lot of dots, but it's 1%. Could you sit here and count those dots for me and just figure out what percent is outside One, of that range? Two, the, three. There was a high four, number of patients who had at least one discrepancy. 75, value. 76. They had 23% of patients had no discrepant values, which means 76.8% had at least one set of discrepant values. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of patients with discrepant values on this, on this plot, three fourths. Three quarters of your patients have a discrepant value, at least 10% difference by that definition. I feel like that's a lot. Figure two and table two are looking at the factors which predict discrepancy. They found that in their logistic regression, there were five factors, patient factors that predicted discrepancy, radial location, norepinephrine dose, BMI, age, 
and then a lower overall map. I don't, I'm not really sure what to make of these. The norepi dose and lower overall map and maybe age and BMI could represent severity of illness. But I mean, they had severity of illness as a separate marker that was not a predictor of discrepancy. So I, I don't know if I can really draw any conclusions from that analysis. It looks like the lower your map is, the more they may be discrepant. That doesn't surprise me that much. Because they're using 10%, right? So you have a smaller range. Yeah, the, there's that. But the other part of it is, is that my suspicion is, is that the non-invasive blood pressure cuff is just less accurate when you get out of what is the normal range. What it was like calibrated for. Yeah. And yeah. so it doesn't surprise me that the invasive and the non-invasive have more discrepancy when you're in the extremes. And my suspicion is, is that they don't have very many high extremes. Like they didn't put art lines in people that had 220 over 140. I mean, which is one of the reasons we put in arterial lines here for Sometimes. close blood pressure management for hypertensive urgency and emergency. Sometimes, yeah. I mean, so I think based off of kind of what our practice has evolved to, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. When patients are on the extremes, we tend to use more art lines. We tend to favor them in those patients. So it doesn't surprise me that those are the times when the nurse, the provider thinks the non-invasive cup is cup. Non-invasive cuff isn't that accurate. And it turns out those are the times when the non-invasive cuff is less accurate. So if you think this is a little bit reaffirming to how it's you like practice. It's like when the nurses tell you they can smell C. diff. <sighs> no, it's not like that. Never mind. I, I think it's pretty easy just to look at like the the aggregate and average numbers here and say, well, the non-invasive blood pressures are on average a little bit lower than the invasive blood pressures, so six millimeters of mercury. But I really feel like they, they're scattered all over. The correlation seems pretty poor just in general for me. And again, this is the critically ill population. Is this actually, Todd, just a pretty good correlation? I'm just not trained to look at these Bland-Altman plots. Well, I mean, I think the correlation is is reasonable. I don't know that it's excellent, excellent, but I also don't know that it's so bad that we should throw away the non-invasive blood pressure cuffs and put an arterial line in everybody either. You know, I think in general, this is reasonably good, probably good enough for most patients in clinical practice, but there probably are times where the art line is probably needed and probably better. Yeah. So their conclusion was that there was a broad agreement between the invasive and non-invasive blood pressure measurements across a wide range of blood pressure values and patient severity of illness which would provide preliminary rationale for further research. And so I think that the, I agree with their conclusion that it supports the need for future research, but I'm not sure I really buy that there's a ton of agreement. I'm not sure that I'm reaching for arterial lines in everyone, but some, sometimes I do wonder if my threshold should be a little bit lower, if there's really these discrepancy. However, I, I think that the next conversation might inform this decision a bit too, so maybe hold that thought. Would love to hear from anyone who works in a hospital who has this as a as a protocol, who seems to use it more often, any patients on pressors, any patients with certain blood pressure values. Any last thoughts on this article or invasive versus non-invasive cuffs? It doesn't sound like you learn much from this article. Like it doesn't sound like you think that it's informative to your practice or should change your practice or maybe I'm just misreading you. No, I, I think I think you're right. I think right now, based off of this, I guess I'll say I've questioned, and the reason I was interested in looking at this topic, whether my non-invasive cuff and my invasive blood pressure measurements had a good enough correlation for me to trust. And based off of this, even though their conclusion is that there's a good agreement, I actually am thinking that maybe there's not a great agreement. 
But the reason I say that I think our next to- next topic might inform whether or not we should do more invasive cusp pressures or not is because I'm not really sure we know what our map target should be. And so having a more accurate map, I'm not sure is the is the right answer necessarily. Yeah, this to me is the is the NFL, right? The NFL says you have to get 10 yards to get a first down. And then they have some guy come in and randomly put his foot down to spot the ball. And then they bring out a chain that is exactly 10 yards to measure it. And it's like, wait a minute. You've like taken the inaccuracy of the foot and then you've tried to compare it against the accuracy of the of the chain. You know, there's like probably 30% of our listeners who don't know what yards or, or feet as are as far as measurement are, doesn't know what the NFL is, talking about very specific rules, talking about nerd clusters this is a as great, a candy. This is a great pod. Yeah. This is this is this is not our most generalizable podcast. Sorry. I I mean I think that there's a number of things in play. One is if the two don't agree or don't agree closely enough that you're calling them agreeing, because I think the 10% they just kind of came up with on their own. Yeah, which – and to their credit, they also justified, right? They said yeah. instead of using a hard cutoff, they said 10% makes a lot more sense because they're going to be talking about a wide range of map values where a hard cutoff of six might be a big deal when your map is – 50 compared to hard cutoff of six when your map is 120. All of that aside, we assume, I think, in this, that the invasive is the gold standard. But the problem is that the invasive involves technology that can have its own problems. So the the non-invasive involves technology that may not be accurate because it may not be able to hear the tones that it needs in people under certain conditions, under certain severe, extreme blood pressures, et cetera, et cetera. But, I mean, how many times have you troubleshot an art line because it had whip or because it was damped? Or because, you know, the waveform didn't look very good or. Yeah. You had the, you have the blood pressure reading that's giving you like 46 over 35. And it's like, that's probably not right. right? Or 46 over 45. Yeah. Right. Your pulse pressure is one. Yeah. So, so you have a gold standard that you think is the better part, but that also has its problems. And both of those things I think are going to increase your discrepancies between the two. If one is perfect. And then the other is trying to measure against it. You've got one that has problems and might not, you know, match, but one's not perfect. One of them has problems also. And it could be that either of them has problems that make them discrepant. So therefore you have more discrepance. Another way of saying what you're trying to say is we don't have a true gold standard of their, the patient's blood pressure. If you had a patient who had a blood pressure that wasn't changing over time and you had an arterial line and because of wear and tear and other factors that the A-line might actually read different. It's got a little clot on the end of it. It's got a bubble in the tubing. It's got, you know, a whip. It's got, it's zeroed at the wrong spot. It's kinked. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a number of places where it can have an accurate reading also. Yeah. I don't imagine that we'll have a article that to talk about this. So just curious of your thoughts talking about peripheral versus central arterial lines. My experience with this has been that- You love yourself some aortic arterial lines? Yeah, I love sticking the aorta. No, my experience with this is that the maps are generally the same between them, but there's a wider pulse pressure when you get more central. I think that's true. I think it's also true when you have dampening of your your line and you have some whip and that sort of stuff. I think in general, the maps tend to be more accurate than- than the actual systolic and diastolic numbers. And, and in fact, when we have both and we're talking about taking out the arterial line and you ask the nurse, hey, do they correlate? What I really care about is does the maps, do the maps correlate? Right. 
All right, old article time. We're going to continue our discussion on blood pressure and talk about the 65 trial. This is an article titled, The Effect of Reduced Exposure to Vasopressors on 90-Day Mortality in Older Critically Ill Patients with Vasodilatory Hypotension. Published by LaMontagne et al. in February of 2020 in JAMA. There was no acronym for the last paper, and technically there isn't one here. The trial protocol denotes 65 trial, quote-unquote, as a, quote, study short title. Uh, so what are your thoughts on the short title here? I, I just don't even understand how they got to it. What do you mean you don't understand they got to it? <laughs> I, think it's a, I think it's a great short title. It makes, yeah. me, it makes me giddy, yeah. right? Makes you giddy? Yes, giddy. That makes you giddy. Yes, it makes me giddy. Wow. The patients are age of 65. That's what they're looking at. Map of 65 versus 60. Yeah. And they even had 65 hospitals. There's 65 hospitals in the UK. Man. 65 months? I don't know, actually. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. That's five years. Was it 65 bottles of beer on the wall? Maybe afterwards. Yeah. I think it's a great short title. It is a good short title. I'm and, not going to beat it up. But. And it also doesn't it doesn't pretend that's an acronym, right? Like some of the other articles that we've been talking about recently. <laughs> you really hate the articles that pretend they have an acronym. Yeah, like it's, it's just not an acronym. It's okay. Yeah. Like you just don't have to pretend like it is one. Yeah. So I think as if you're talking about grading acronyms, it's a defen- definitive, not applicable here. But yeah, I think it's an incomplete. An incomplete. Uh, what would you grade it, though, just in general? Incomplete. I mean, probably eight. No, I think I'll give this a nine. I like this one. 65 trial. I know exactly what it's talking about. I won't forget this one. In typical short article fashion, we're going to go over this one quickly and use it as jumping off point to discussion. This trial looked at permissive hypotension defined as a MAP target of 60 instead of 65 and what it had an impact on 90-day mortality for critically ill patients who are 65 years of age or older. They end up tying permissive hypotension to mortality by vasopressor sparing, but, but really the intervention, unless I'm interpreting wrong, is the MAP target. That's the 65. <laughs> there are also sparse data to support a MAP target of 65. I think the biggest trial that I'm aware of is sepsis PAM, which looked at MAP targets of 85 versus 65 and determined that 65 was not worse, except for maybe in subgroups, chronic hypertension and on secondary outcomes of renal function. So there's a lot of caveats, a lot of hypothesis generation there. There's some retrospective data suggesting that those who are exposed to more vasopressors have increased mortality, which, you know... In an observational sense, I think there's a lot of confounders there. Assuming the same MAP target, if you need more medicine to achieve the same target, you're sicker and probably sicker patients have worse outcomes. Now, any insights into the MAP targets or the history thereof? No, I know that the MAP target of 65 history is based off of not very good data and needs to be studied further. Although, as you'll see with this trial and we've seen with other MAP target trials, they're hard to do and they in general tend to be a bit disappointing. Some of this may be, and, and they're trying to get at this in this trial, but some of this may be that we generalize a target across many different populations. And it might be, as we've seen, that people just have different maps and need different map targets. And we just haven't gotten specialized and personalized enough yet to be able to implement that into our ICU practices. And that's what they tried to do here, right? They tried to they target a specific population. That but might. they assumed all 65-year-olds needed a higher map. Uh, aren't you the same as every other 65-year-old, Todd? Close to it, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Like I said, they took older patients with vasodilatory hypotension, which was evaluated by the treating clinician and randomized to a map target of 60 versus 65, with the primary outcome of 90-day mortality. 
90-day mortality is a little bit unusual of an outcome for a cr critical care trial, but I'm all for it. it. It doesn't appear that they noted how many patients had the arterial lines and the text methods or supplement, you know, just informed from our prior conversation. They ended up with a final analysis cohort of 2,463 patients. Their median age was 75, about 56% male. About half the patients had chronic hypertension and two-thirds were independent with their so, ADLs. Can we go back for a minute? Yeah. How can you give it a nine when the median age was 75? Because they enrolled patients older it than 65. It wasn't the 65 to 75 trial. It was the 65 well, their trial. Their min age was 65. I don't even need to look at their analysis cohort to tell you that, Todd. I think what we have here is great inflation. <laughs> I like to tell me It made me giddy. Uh, about 75% of the patients had sepsis or septic shock. For their separation between groups, and I don't know if this is what you were referring to when you said they're sometimes disappointing and hard to do, but there were fewer hours on vasopressors, which was 33 hours versus 38 hours for the lower MAP target versus the higher MAP target, respectively. Then there was also lower total norepinephrine equivalents. So it's a pretty clear separation, but only about five hours, which isn't a ton. I, I think this is a pretty modest separation between the groups, meaning not a big difference. It might just be the nature of the intervention. There's natural variability in blood pressure measurements, as we discussed before, and separating by five millimeters of mercury map target, I think, leaves a lot of overlap just inherently. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you could you could say, I don't think that a, a large enough trial, large enough being a big enough difference between the groups, trial was done here to adequately investigate whether we know what we're doing with map targets in critically ill patients. I mean, this is kind of... Uh, a pragmatic aspect of this trial, right? It's it's what you're targeting. So if, even if you ha achieve higher MAP targets than 60, even into the 65 range, the point was that you're targeting 60 and targeting 60 was okay. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. The uh, Spoiler alert. Yeah, the primary outcome was 90-day mortality, which was 41% versus 43.8%, which was a non-significant result with a p-value of 0 0.15, but is a trend towards a benefit with the lower MAP target. There was an adjusted analysis that actually found significance in this outcome. And as far as safety outcomes, the most common was acute renal failure, which was numerically more common in the lower MAP target group of 3.2 versus 2.5%. Broad thoughts on the results after I spoiled them. I mean, I think this is one of the reasons I think it's disappointing is the results just aren't that different. Technically, if you really believe in 65 and a higher MAP, but you that's, can say- But that's a big deal though, right? Like saying that Low, like there's not a big difference and you're targeting a lower map. You're kind of pushing that lower bound, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess it's a big difference. What did it get you? It got you five fewer hours of pressers. So you turn them off at 8 a.m. instead of 3 a.m. Yeah. One of the reasons I wanted to talk about this was because I did want to talk a little bit about how low can we go, right? The limbo. The limbo. I want to talk a little about the limbo here. Todd, how good are you at limbo? I, uh, I don't need you, you to answer that question. I was just going to say, you know the answer to that question. Yeah. Uh, a lot I'm of the targets. Really good. <laughs> okay. Uh, a lot of the targets we have, I think the easiest two examples are like, you know, hemoglobin transfused to seven and MAP target of 65. You know, those are the lower end of trials that said the lower end was not worse. So for hemoglobin, this is seven versus nine. For MAP targets, we have 65 versus 85. You know, I guess you the, there's the box blood pressure trial that looked at 77 versus 63. But effectively, all of these say that, you know, higher isn't better or conversely lower is okay. And, and this does too. And so I guess the question is how but, low can you go? But I think we need to make one nuanced statement that I think is important to that. Which is, is that forced higher is not, if it's higher because not 
by something that we're having to do to make it higher, that may be better. Your hemoglobin of 12 may be better than a hemoglobin of 8 if those are your two natural numbers. If I have to give you packed cells to get your hemoglobin from 8 to 12, the data suggests that that's not a benefit to you. Yeah, So, but, but amongst patients who are already receiving an intervention, so in yeah. taking it back to blood pressure, already receiving vasopressors, yeah. where do you force it to, Yeah, right, is the question. Yeah. So, like, but, but again, I think, I don't know this for a fact, but I think we lose what may be the optimal strategy, which is more personalization of these numbers in this two general strategies that we're just going to apply them across a broad group of, th- yes, the patients are over the age of 65, all of them are, but it's a broad group of patients, right? So you're- We don't know if we would target 60, but have a strategy that says, if we target 60, but your lactate is still elevated, we're going to target 65 until your lactate resolves, and then we can go back to targeting 60, for example, right? Where the strategy varies a little bit based off of each individual's person's clinical condition, urine output, for example, you know, all of those sorts of things. And it might be if you do a broad strategy across broad populations, we can't see that they're different. But if we really knew what we were doing, and I think you can probably figure out from this point that I contend, I'm not sure we know what we're doing with blood pressure targets. If we really did know what we were doing and could personalize it to each patient, maybe that's where you're going to actually see a difference in outcomes. But I think we're a ways from even trying that. So what you're saying is that there's probably some degree of like individualized treatment effect here in these trials that are being hidden because we're using broad populations, that there's some patients who are randomized to a higher target that would have benefited from a lower, but we just don't know it. And there's some patients who are randomized to a lower target who were harmed potentially by the lower target, and we just don't know it because it's it's hidden. I mean, maybe maybe you haven't seen it, but I suspect many of our listeners have, and you'll see it in your career. The patient whose MAP is 60, and they're just a little off, and you say, okay, you know, I know they're on one or two of norepi, make it five, their MAP becomes 67 or 68. And their mental and, status improves. Yeah, and suddenly they're, they're better, right? And you go, hmm, right? That person is getting 60 in the 60 arm because that's what we targeted, when in reality – an individualized strategy may let somebody be at 60 if they're perfectly fine, their lactate's fine, they're making urine, their mental status is fine, but change that target if those things aren't fine when they're at 60. Yeah. The the way that this, I think, comes into play mostly for me is the opposite side. I was right? just going to say, we do this a lot the other way. Yeah. So the patient who you're they're on one to two to three mics per minute of norepinephrine, they achieve a MAP target of 65 and they just sit there looking like a peach for days and days on end. It's like, well, why don't we try a lower map target and just, you know, yeah. look at their mental status, look at their renal function, trend their labs and see if there's any evidence of or- end organ dysfunction with a lower map target. The and other, the other and place, by and large, there's, there's usually not. Yeah. Whenever and the other that. place where I think we do this on the back end is the patient who has a really low diastolic blood pressure, right? And the nurse says, hey, the pressure is 130 over 45, but I have to keep going up on that pressures because the diastolic is so low that, you know, I have to make their systolic 130 to make their MAP. Yeah, 65. so we see that a lot in cirrhosis and sepsis, things that are dropping your systemic vascular yeah. resistance. Yeah, things that have a wide pulse pressure. Yeah. Aortic insufficiency. feel like I'm taking the oral boards right now. <laughs> That's good. That's good. That's what we like to have you feel on that in Toddcast, Todd. So, so I think in general, here's what I'd say, right? I think we're still at the point where we haven't figured out that there is an optimal single target MAP for every patient that we take care of in the critical world, critical care world. Is it 60? It might be okay. Looks like it's, in, at least in the elderly population, it looks like it's 
probably okay. Although some people would say, I don't know, there's a little bit more renal failure. There's a little bit worse of this. You know, they weren't statistically significant, but they weren't powered for that outcome. Right. And it's five more hours of pressors, right? If you can reduce renal failure by 33% absolute risk reduction, but with five more hours of pressors, why wouldn't you do that? Well, you wouldn't do that in this study because you don't know that that's real. But if you were confident that that was a real difference, you might, you might do that. And so ultimately it says, you know, kudos because we need to continue to study maps and what we're doing with this. But I still think we have a long way to go before we truly understand what we're doing with what should we be targeting with blood pressure and mean arterial pressure and, you know, that sort of stuff. And, you know, in the trauma world right now, they do permissive hypotension because they've moved towards, you know, even having lower blood pressures. Now they also have bleeding and permissive hypotension may reduce bleeding and that sort of stuff. So it's, it, Fully admitted, it's a different population. But I think, for me... It's still the question of limbo. How low can you go? Like, how low is going to be actually truly detrimental for your patient? And your individual patient, the patient that you're taking care of. Yeah, yeah. I deferred a little bit of the arterial line discussion. I alluded to a little bit in the last section. Let's come back to that really quickly. Bringing together non-invasive versus invasive blood pressure measurements and then also MAP targets, like... And this is a little bit obvious, but just for a frame, I know you're going to, I'm just going to say that before you make fun of me. Your non-invasive pressure could be the same as your invasive pressure, which that's the same. That's great. There's nothing to talk about. If the non-invasive pressure is higher, then perhaps the problem is maybe vasopressor exposure may be harmful. Maybe sepsis pam didn't see a harm in a higher map necessarily. So maybe that's not the right rationale. And if it's a little bit lower, I mean, I'm not sure that we know our map target has a true lower bound. So I think for me, I'm going to give the generic, I'm excited for someone to do this as a trial and look at clinical outcomes. But until then, I'm not rushing to place arterial lines, you know, routinely in all patients. I think mostly because I just really don't know what kind of benefit I'm getting from a more accurate invasive blood pressure. And we talked about maybe it's not more accurate. Yeah, the hard part is is that there is assuredly in some patients a discrepancy that makes it so that you it was too low and you knocked the bar off right in the limbo that's not true necessarily in every patient but it could be true in patients and so trying to figure that out i think is part of the difficulty of trying to understand what we're doing with blood pressure targets with agents that manipulate vasoactive agents that change blood pressure whether it be high or low for that matter. Let's, I mean, let's finish this pod with a thought experiment. How would you do this, Todd? Was kind of like, would you find patients who are requiring vasopressors? I'm just spitballing here to achieve a map of 65 and then you randomize them to guided by end organ dysfunction where you have some sort of criteria like a protocol. Probably, yeah. And then versus just keep maintaining a map of 65 and then you're going to look I think at it would clinical be a, outcomes. I think it would be a strategy study. You would have two strategies. One strategy was, I'm just going to target a map of 65. And the other strategy was, I'm going to target a map that is a map that is enough to have the person make urine, have the person clear a lactate, and have the person thinking reasonably normal. For me, I was always taught those are the three things that are sort of the poor man's swan for, you know, do you have enough perfusion? Do you clear your lactate? Do you make urine? Assuming you don't already don't have kidney disease. And what's your mental status? And, and so I don't think, I think that intervention arm, I'll call that the intervention arm. It probably has a number, 60, high 50s, whatever you want to make it. And then says, but if you're at that number and your lactate's not clearing or your urine output is less than pick something, 30 cc's an hour or whatever, 
then you've got to increase it. And I don't know that in that strategy, I would limit the increase to 65. And maybe some patients need 70. That might also be hard too, right? So like how many of your patients, you know, they got their hypotension from sepsis and then they have ATN, they're not going to be making urine. I feel like, I mean, I think the reason that this hasn't been done is because of these difficulties that we've talked about, we're talking about right now. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to be basic. You could use tissue oxygenation measures. You could use cap refill. Maybe. I mean, Andromeda shock kind of did that. Yeah, That's what I was getting at. So um, you could use, you could go all the way back to many rivers and use an SVO2. Continuous? Yeah, if you wanted. But, you know, I think that's part of the problem here. And that's the reason. It's not that people that are doing studies in this area are stupid and can't figure this out. It's that this it's is hard. really hard. Yeah, this is hard. And, and you know, as we're talking about, we don't even know what the right marker is that says that number is okay for you. I brought up poor man swan and perfusion stuff, but it could be transcutaneous oxygen saturation. It could be cap refill. It could be some biomarker that we haven't even found yet. Yeah. I, I think, I think overall, like we they give a lot of you know, kudos and thanks and uh, to all of the authors and people trying to study this area. I, I mean, I'll just say it point blank. The reason that I'm not studying it, cause I think it's going to be hard. Like it's going to be really, really hard. And so whoever uh, ends up studying this, I mean, the, the power to them, they're going to be a much smarter person than I with much better mentorship. But that's all we have for this episode. I mean, it's hard to get better mentorship. It's not. It's really not. Not for me. Uh, that's all we have for this episode of ICU Head and Toddcast. If you have any questions for Todd or myself or anything you want us to talk about in the future, you can hit us up at icuheadandtodcast at gmail.com. You can hit us up on the social at ICUcast at Ed Chan. That's E-D-Q-I-A-N at, at Todd Rice underscore ICU. Thank you, Todd. Thank you and congratulations again to the authors. Thank you to Mike Gannon for the intro and outro music. Thank you again to everyone listening and we will see you next time. Let's go save some lives. I just want to say, if this podcast is 10 minutes long, it's because and he cut out all my good jokes. This podcast is made for educational purposes. The content provided in this podcast and in any linked materials is not intended and should not be considered as medical advice and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition. It's inevitable we try to stay away from opinions, but all opinions represent our own and not of any entity that we work at. Please keep this in mind as you enjoy the podcast.